Hey everyone, Charles Starr here. No cold open this week as episode 5 heads in a different direction than the first four. A different direction than any of my other podcasting, really. The Supreme Court handed down Bostock v. Clayton County, a landmark case extending the reach of the sex discrimination provision of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to cover gay and trans litigants. Joining me to discuss the decision, instead of my usual group of smart-ass friends, I have guests. Expert guests. Ezra Ishmael Young is a civil rights litigator and probable future professor who predicted Gorsuch's vote and the vindication of gay and trans rights under Title VII. Jessica Clark is a professor at Vanderbilt who wrote about the history of circuit court decisions interpreting Title VII, explaining how the first 40 years of appellate decisions restricting coverage were mistaken, pointing the way to last week's decision. It's somewhere between an interview and a discussion, and I learned a lot and thank them so much for taking the time to come talk with me. Without further ado, this is Hostile Witness. Bear with us. Even though I always talk about everything being bad news, we started like this is actually kind of a good news podcast. And so I don't know how that's going to affect my mood going forward. But for now, it's pretty good news. We have three cases all come up through the system separately and all get consolidated at the Supreme Court. And while Gorsuch wrote an opinion uh, applying Title VII to all of them, sorry for the spoiler, He never really talked much about the individual cases, and so I want to get that done at the beginning, just because I think all of the litigants deserve the dignity of being made more real. Ezra, do you want to start with uh, Amy Stevens and her case? Sure thing. So Amy Stevens, who unfortunately died uh, just last month in May 2020, so just missed seeing this decision issued, which is quite a travesty, knew herself to be female for basically the entirety of her life. At least that's what she you know, told us all before she passed. In 2013, after she had been working at a funeral home in rural Michigan um, as a funeral director, and after several years of therapy, she told her boss, the owner of the funeral home, that she planned to undergo a gender transition and that she wanted to, after a brief period of time apart from work, come back and present herself uh, as a woman uh, using the name Amy. And that's the only name I'll use for her. She wrote um, what I I would say and most other people would say is probably a a really heartfelt letter to her colleagues, asking them for, among other things, patience, understanding, and support. Uh, She acknowledged how difficult, how odd, how scary this experience was for herself and for everyone around her. But she just asked for some space to essentially just do her job, just as she had always done, just presenting as her true self. Unfortunately, her boss, among other things, worried she would not look right in a dress, that she would alarm everyone around her. Um, The problem being with that, that the only one who ever expressed alarm about who Amy was or how she looked or how she could do her job as a woman was her boss. Um, And he basically immediately fired her. Um, she went ahead and filed a charge with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the federal agency that investigates workplace discrimination. And she, among other things, said that she thought she had been discriminated against on the basis of sex, which is essentially the legal issue at the heart of this matter. And um, at the time, the EOC investigated but wasn't really sure what to do with it, not because they didn't know that transgender people were protected, but literally because for a very long time in this country, even in the federal government, 
the idea of protecting a transgender person under regular laws was just unfathomable. What, just but, just as, yeah. a, as a quick question, because I think it goes to what a meat grinder the legal system is. When, yes. when, did, when did Amy first bring her case to the EEOC? So I believe that she filed a charge of discrimination in 2013 around when this happened. Right. Okay. Um, so that's yeah. seven seven years from uh, from bringing the charge uh, to resolution, and it's like not even resolved really because it just gets remanded for proceedings on the facts, you know. But seven years of uh, seven years of uh, history just to get to this point, which is like not even uncommon on on. The litigation history of cases like this completely not common and so her case ended at the sixth circuit um on a, a, a uh, affirmance of summary judgment so there are other fact issues other damages issues and as i said earlier amy literally died waiting for a decision and yeah. that is not uncommon at all in title seven cases they take so long okay so that's one the second one jessica would you mind setting up uh bostock uh, sure. So the plaintiff in Bostock, um, a man uh, named Gerald Bostock, was a child welfare advocate uh, in Clayton County, Georgia, who was, by all reports, uh, very uh, capable and successful as a child welfare advocate, worked for the county for a decade. Um, Employee of the year. Right. Uh, but when some members of the community found out that he participated in a gay softball league, uh, suddenly there were some complaints about him and his sexual orientation. And not long after that, he was fired for conduct unbecoming of a county employee. Mm-hmm. And when when his case got to the uh, lower courts, they dismissed his claim for discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation on the ground that um, under precedent, uh, that type of sexual orientation discrimination is simply not a type of sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Right, right. Okay. And then... In the third case, which is Zarda v. Altitude Express, Zarda was uh, a skydiving tandem uh, tandem jump instructor, as I recall. Right. And That's right. There was some there was some ambiguity to me in what I read in the Second Circuit opinion, and then like the very brief summary Gorsuch got because the way Gorsuch phrases it, which is maybe how it's relevant for a motion for summary judgment. They say that he said that he was gay and then was fired a few days later, um, which I guess for this, for Title VII purposes, might be accurate. But from what I recall, a client felt that he touched her inappropriately and he defended himself by saying, I wouldn't have done that. I'm gay. And then he, the the employer certainly alleges that he was just fired for his actual conduct on the jump, right? Which is just sort of a... Right. It's funny the way that uh, Justice Gorsuch paves over all of those facts. The, The way Justice Gorsuch explains it in 
the Supreme Court opinion is uh, after uh, Donald Zarda mentioned he was gay, days later he was fired. But there's a lot of story that happened in those days <laughs> yeah. uh, that you are right. The Second Circuit opinion discusses the whole story, which is that uh, Donald Zarda was doing a tandem skydiving jump. Uh, for a woman and her boyfriend. And in order to put the woman at ease, uh, he said to her, don't worry about being strapped to my back. I'm gay. And I think he made a joke, he said, and I have an ex-husband to prove it. Uh, but the woman nonetheless felt uncomfortable. Um, and when okay. they got to the, the ground, then she accused him of acting inappropriately. Right. Right. And so, and I should mention also uh, that Mr. Zarda did not survive to see this either. His case uh, is also being pursued by his estate, which again, like litigation's a real horrible experience for everyone involved. You know, three, three people get their rights vindicated and two don't even survive to see it because of how long it takes uh, to get through the system. Zarda um, was fired in 2010, and yeah. it took 10 years for, for his case to get to the Supreme Court. Right. And I mean, and like I said, Zarda, Zarda's case ends up being much more complicated because uh, unlike the other cases where nobody disputes that Stevens and Bostock were, mo were like model employees... Zarda was fired, like, he had most of his non-civil rights claims dismissed on the facts. Like, this, the, the district court believed that the employer had a legitimate reason to fire him, dismissing all the other claims, but, and this kind of can lead into where Gorsuch was going, Title VII mixed motive claims survive, right, under a but-for causation rule, which is what revives it here. And so that uh, sets up the, what Gorsuch wrote was a very, I thought, it's long, <laughs> but it's, it's long mostly because it's saying what it's not doing. But the actual legal opinion is like really brief, right? He goes, the statute says you can't be fired because of sex, and ultimately, uh, sexual orientation and um, and um, my brain is locking up on a, a phrase other than gender presentation, but transgenderism is downstream of sex, into, like philosophically, and so they're covered by sex, right? Like that's the whole Gorsuch opinion. Downstream of sex is a very... Uh... Uh, good, concise phrase to explain his reasoning. Um, yes, I'd agree with that. <laughs> you know, and he and he basically he basically shrugs off everything else as thinking too hard. You know, every everything else you try to do, it ends up circling back to sex anyway. And so why are you knocking yourself out with this bullshit? It's clearly a Title Seven claim, even if people have been getting it wrong for decades. And I mean, that's the, that is, uh, Jessica, the article of yours that I read. I definitely um, agree with that. Courts had been overthinking it. And it's such a basic argument that in his dissent, Justice Kavanaugh accuses uh, Justice Gorsuch of being too literal. Right, 
Right. Yep. Um, and I mean, you see this much more acutely in Alito, I think, than Kavanaugh. And just as a parallel, Alito wrote the opinion that Judge Ho wrote in the Fifth Circuit, I think, in Gibson v. Collier, where he screams a lot about the history of treating gay and trans people as deviants, but then says, and that's why it's good to deny them rights now. Um, and Kavanaugh wrote an opinion much more like Lynch in the Second Circuit in Zarda, where he felt like he was deciding it more in sorrow than in anger, that how sad it is that our uh, gay brothers and sisters who should have rights sadly still don't, but for this terrible decision. One thing uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Ezra, you know, you refer to Amy and you said that it was the only name you were going to mention for her. And I just, one of the things that struck me, especially after reading the Fifth Circuit cases, is how unremarkable it was that uh, Gorsuch used feminine pronouns for Stevens when he referred to her in the opinion, right? He didn't say that he was using feminine pronouns. He didn't have a footnote about why he was using feminine pronouns. He just did it because in keeping, I think, with the opinion, which appellate, which circuit court judges, I think, don't always do, he just treated it like the correct and natural thing to do without any fanfare, which I thought was the right approach here. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I would say, actually, um, a lot of people who don't read a lot of transgender rights cases of any kind or any cases involving transgender people think it's exceptional for this to happen. But actually, it's it's not. The vast majority of judges, conservatives, liberals, everyone in between, just like any other litigant that comes before them, use the reference and name that they hold themselves out as just as a matter of basic respect. And that makes sense. Like you don't call someone by a name or use a title they hate or they think is offensive. And, you know, I, I, I liked that Gorsuch didn't, like you said, have to even mark it with a footnote. because It was just so self-evident. And I liked that even though, you know, Lido and uh, Kavanaugh are, you know, not pleased with this result, they did the same thing. They, mm -hmm. they referred to all these people by their names and by the reference that they liked. And there, there wasn't any denigrating language. And that, that's nice. That marks a departure from some of the cases that Jessica uh, points to in uh, her article, as well as a departure from you know, our, our friends on the Fifth Circuit, some right. of those people. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, we talked about, I think it was Judge Duncan, and I don't remember which case it was, but he went on for pages yeah. and pages and pages about not only how he didn't have to do it out of respect, but that referring to the litigant by her uh, chosen, her preferred pronouns was itself evidence of bias. Because... Yes, as well as, as well as, my favorite part of that, not to interrupt, my favorite part of that, as well as honoring a state court order of name change that right. no one actually disputed was valid. And hopefully that'll be a signal to lower court judges to stop screwing around with people's dignity, you know. Referring to people by their correct names is simply a matter of humanity. Right. It's, uh, it's absurd that J Judge Duncan would would try to uh, win this culture war against transgender people by uh, insulting litigants. Right. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and I would add to that, um, again, his, his position is such an outlier in Gorsuch's and Alito's and Kavanaugh's you know, use of appropriate names and pronouns is not such an outlier. But this isn't the first time the Supreme Court has properly referred to a transgender person. And Farmer v. Brennan in 1994, you know, those well-known liberal lions like Justice Rehnquist, they all referred to D. Farmer during oral argument as a woman with female pronouns and by her chosen name. That was just besides the point for them. None of them got stuck up on this. And that was, you know, 20, 26 years ago. So, you know, hopefully this reaffirms the same position that the Supreme Court took in 1994. But maybe for some of these folks that they, they need more in re reinforcement to just get that basic point. Because right. this isn't rocket science. Yep. Okay. Since Gorsuch didn't say a lot, it's easier to refer to refer back to what he said in contrast to the dissents. And I guess we should start with Alito because it's the it's the sort of meatier and more unhinged. And the, the question that I had, this one actually is uh, for you, Ezra, because it goes to the article by you that I first read, which introduced me to you, which was a counterfactual oral argument had uh, Amy Stevens, had Amy Stevens' trans attorney been the one doing oral argument rather than David Cole? And while this doesn't go to, this doesn't go to Cole's um, part of the oral argument, Alito included a hypothetical, a snippet of the colloquy, and it had a hypothetical with this sort of weird scenario where you knew the sexual orientation of the job applicant, but you didn't know their sex, right? And having known only the sexual orientation, but not the sex, if you denied that person the job, would that have been because of sex under Title VII? And the attorney in that case conceded the point and said, that is, and Alito was like, well, that, you know, the whole edifice crumbles. And so I have two questions. First, like the first is how you respond to the edifice crumbling. And the second is how you would have countered the argument. Well, I, I think during oral argument, it was, it was a very odd thing to concede during both the sexual orientation and the transgender cases. Very odd for anyone that's an expert in this field. Odd concessions were made. And for uh, practitioners like myself, all, all we could think was these these are not like questions out of left field. These are the same kind of questions that we've been dealing with in the lower courts in oral arguments for literally decades. There are known ways to respond to these things, and there are known responses that best fit particular types of ide ideological commitments that jurists have. So not only do we have preset answers, but we have preset answers for the very specific sort of judge we're in front of for any one of these questions. So as to how I would have responded to that particular question, which I believe was asked by Alito, I would say pr probably something close to what Justice Gorsuch said in the majority opinion, that at the end of the day, the question about sexual orientation doesn't get you anywhere. There's no way to strip sexual orientation of sex, because at some point you are, in fact, referring to someone's sex. You're not just saying if someone's gay or lesbian, though that itself implicates the person's sex, right, in a very mm -hmm. obvious way or bisexual <clears throat> even. But what, what you're getting at is something about a discomfort with, a distaste for someone of one sex uh, having romantic inclinations, you know, sexual acts, whatever it is, with someone of the same sex. There's there's sex two right. times over there, right? 
And the only way to try to strip it, which I think Justice Gorsuch uh, rightly, rightfully calls out, uh, of sex of any kind sort of gets you in this nebulous place where you implicate sex nonetheless. So Gorsuch had this really great example in his opinion where he said, well, if an employer doesn't ask anyone sex, so it's sex blind, but asks its uh, prospective employees on a job application to check a box that says if they're gay or transgender and they don't define the term and let's just pretend that the applicant has no idea what either of those terms mean, right? How is the employer going to explain what those terms mean without referring to sex? There's no way whatsoever, right? It, it's just impossible. So it's not just, I think, that at the end of the day, you know, these, these concepts are close to sex, but they are, in fact, encompassed in sex, right? right. They, they have to be part of sex because you can't refer to them. You can't make sense of these terms, make sense of what these restrictions are without, at the end of the day, talking about sex, right. whatever it might be. Which I think, which I think then leads into like Alito's next point, which was to distinguish it from Loving versus Virginia, which I think just sort of falls apart once you're using Gorsuch's frame, because the relationship type questions that I guess this is true about um, homosexuality rather than transgenderism, but the homosexual, the homosexuality analogy to Loving I think is pretty clear once you sort of like, once you have to define the term, it re it sort of reduces down to because of sex again. And so loving ends up working as a good precedent because of like relationship, you know, discriminating based on someone's relationships. I think that's yeah, a good yeah, argument. We were agreeing on the exact same thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't quite get where Alito was going, except to attribute sort of pure malice. He says that sex stereotyping doesn't meet the burden, which, by the way, I, sex stereotyping in both of your articles, I thought was very interesting, um, getting away from Alito. With respect to Amy Stevens' case and trans rights in general, because I don't, I think I won't do it justice if I explain it, but I thought the way that both of you talked about the sex stereotyping issue as a, a trap for cis people like me to talk about, because it runs the risk, and like, I guess a lot of cis attorneys have sort of stepped in it, where they f presented arguments in a way that denied trans litigants their own gender identity as a way of trying to meet a statutory concern from a possibly recalcitrant judge. Ezra, you should definitely uh, okay. <laughs> explain this so, one. So, yeah. So um, for a long time, and Jessica's article does a really good job of, about talking about the early uh, transgender cases in particular, because this is where it comes up. But for a long time in the verse, the very first cases, uh, transgender women, in most of the cases were brought by transgender women for other reasons, would present themselves to the court as being, in fact, transgender women. They sometimes used the word transsexual or language that was appropriate for the time in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the initial cases all lost, all on the logic at the circuit court level that basically transgender people weren't protected for these reasons that Justice Gorsuch you know, puts to bed now, uh, finally and forever. For a bit, after those initial big losses, lawyers who had their hearts in the right place, but were not thinking right, I would say, thought that they could sort of pull a fast one on the courts and say, okay, well, if you're not protected as a transgender woman, maybe if we just say that you're just a different kind of man, that means you're protected. And for obvious reasons, for a lot of transgender people, myself included, that is incredibly offensive. It's not really a win 
if you have to basically lie about who you actually are in court to get rights. And if your rights only go so far as to practice, if you're a transgender woman, as far as another man, right? It's just deeply Mm -hmm. offensive. It's a deep, deep dignitary harm. And a lot of transgender people have been very vocal about that for a long time. There's an article written by Sharon McGowan, a cisgender woman, uh, who did an early transgender case. Diane Schroyer, in a case brought uh, by the ACLU many years ago, uh, litigated by cisgender lawyer Sharon McGowan, who's now at Lambda Legal. In in an article Sharon wrote, I think about 10 years ago at this point, she she interviewed her client to sort of explain. And Diane Schroyer explains just very succinctly, like, I did not go through this hell to be vindicated as a man. I am a woman, and what they did to me as a woman was wrong. It was discriminatory. It was sex discrimination. And if the court can't see that, if that doesn't matter— then winning doesn't matter at a right. most basic fundamental level. And I, you know, as a transgender person, as a lawyer, as someone who's represented people in these kinds of cases, that is literally what every other cl- every client has ever told me, that they do not want to be vindicated on a lie. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's and I think it's interesting because that argument strategy really shows the difference between the gay rights cases and the trans rights cases, because I think that is a perfect argument for the gay rights uh, strategy on Title VII because so much of it uh, revolved around, you know, while it might have had like a deep core of uh, just pure um, homophobia, straight men were swept up into it like an oncale who were just considered insufficiently masculine Right. And so sex stereotyping in that case ended up being broad because of how effeminate men, straight or gay, were treated. And so it ends up being like a good strategy in one case. And like, even if it was successful, like you said, possibly sort of a catastrophic strategy philosophically in another. Well, and right. I also add that it was very rarely successful. That's that's the most boggling thing. Even <laughs> talking, you know, to the ACLU lawyers about this case, like it has worked a few times, but the vast majority of judges and the vast majority of conservative judges who like if you're counting up votes on the Supreme Court, right, you got the four liberals no matter what. We knew that you just have to get one more conservative. The vast majority of conservative judges hate that strategy, including Justice Gorsuch, when he sat by designation on the Ninth Circuit in 2009 in a case ostensibly just like this during oral argument, he expressed that he didn't understand that argument. That made no sense. You're saying that she's a woman, but sometimes she's a man, but she's a woman. Was she fired because she was a woman or a man? It doesn't make logical sense. It's offensive. He's not stupid. He can see that. And right. it just, again, it has a disproven track record. No one actually likes that argument. It was sort of the belief that you kind of had to dig into transgender people. You had to misrepresent who we are as people to the courts to find acceptance, despite mm-hmm. that never actually working. trying to get through my notes on uh on alito i just want to point out uh that in his desperate his desperate flailing he whines a lot about legislative history and looks at it 
which I think, while I'm not against looking at legislative history, I just want to point it out and shame him for all time that he was so desperate that he actually engaged uh, in the <laughs> in the inquiry. He also made a point about ripple effects in other statutes, and he lists like a hundred federal statutes that I guess he says define themselves the same way, you know, in terms of because of sex. And I have two questions, and I'll direct these to Jessica. One, is he right about this? And two, on a scale of nine to ten, how great is it if it's true? Oh, it's a gift. (laughs) (laughs) The, The appendix is a gift to all of us who are working in this area to expand sex discrimination law to cover LGBTQ people. And I say LGBTQ here uh, because the way that Alito construes the majority opinion, it applies not just to uh, people who are homosexual and people who are transgender, but also people who are bisexual, people who are gender fluid, who he mentioned specifically. All these statutes are now uh, protecting this broader LGBTQ plus community And litigators can go through all of those and start making good arguments on behalf of um, people who are denied opportunities or lose their jobs or lose educational benefits or health care, all of this. Mm -hmm. So great. So great. It always ends up, it ends up on bathrooms Mm -hmm. because, of course, there's going to be uh, a huge section on that. And I don't recall Gorsuch even addressing it in response he does there's one paragraph where gorsuch says you know what that's that's those are cases for another day and right. we will cross that bridge when we get to it right which i think is the right answer right Same. i don't see what legal issue there ends up being on the bathroom locker room question sometimes in my in my weakest moments on the issue I have a twinge of empathy for like when you get to the real edge case and so, like they they pose the situation as a rape victim seeing male genitalia and I'm like I can understand why that for that person might be uh, traumatizing and why as a political matter it's like a really easy way to convince people. Like I see myself kind of as the canary in the coal mine there, right? Like if I'm experiencing empathy, even though I think it's like a terrible policy, I think I I sort of grasp why that ends up being the forefront argument. But I don't get why it's constitutionally significant. Neither do most of the federal courts that uh, have dismissed a lot of cases brought by Uh, cisgender students who complain it's a violation of their privacy to have transgender students in the locker rooms and restrooms that are consistent with their gender identities. Same thing with federal courts dealing with uh, similar claims brought by prisoners, and not just recently, but for decades, conservatives Uh and liberals. It's funny because those cases only happen if the prisoners being housed with their preferred with their gender identity right which does which right. does which, happen which ha- right happened which happened that happens a lot more now than it used to right um i don't think we actually know how often it happened in the past to be quite honest 
there's a lot of just bad statistical data. A lot of what we gather is just anecdotal. So uh-huh. we think that it might be more now than it was before, but we really don't know. Though I guess maybe as a matter of explicit policy, it's probably Yes, more as a matter now. of explicit policy, more now. I have two more things. The one I think that really got me upset is that Alito spent an entire section talking about the impact on RIFRA and religion cases and minister the ministerial exception for clergy employees and all of that. And I'm not crazy, right? Gorsuch signaled that he's definitely going to allow that exception in the future. Right? He sure did. He sure did. <laughs> uh, I mean, he went out of his way to point out that this doesn't affect any of those any of those institutions in any of those cases and still alito couldn't help but complain that we're going to make the pope a woman as a matter of title seven i think that in in gorsuch's mind uh there's a compromise here which is that he's going to find lesbian gay and transgender employees protected under title seven but he wants to see more leeway for people with religious commitments uh, to discriminate. And and that's the that's the the thing that makes me uh, less enthusiastic about this opinion than I would otherwise be. Right. And it- yeah, and I would add I would add to that that he sees uh, religious liberties in a very narrow way. It's only the right to discriminate. It's not the right to not be discriminated against on the basis of your religious beliefs, if they so happen to be pro-LGBT rights, which a very large number of religious people in the United States and elsewhere, that is central to their religious belief system or their philosophical belief system. Right. And and how broad do you think, I mean, I guess Hobby Lobby answers the question in a way, but the ministerial exception, I think I'm pretty sure the court is going to make that literally as broad as possible allowing them to allowing you know a church to fire a gay janitor but with respect to a hobby lobby situation where it's a private employer do you think that gorsuch is going to be maximalist there like talking about like a cvs pharmacist like equating it to a cvs pharmacist who refuses to fill plan b Absolutely. You see Gorsuch calling the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 a super statute that displaces the operation of other laws, other laws like Title VII. And so I think we can predict bigger exemptions for people with religious objections to LGBT folks. And one thing that concerns me about Gorsuch's opinion is how logical it is. It is almost like uh, he's answering the question with math. He uses right. a, a lot of a lot of uh, very uh, syllogistic reasoning, uh, but he doesn't talk about dignity. He doesn't right. talk about the value of LGBTQ Americans. He doesn't explain why they belong in our civil rights tradition. And so, if you you read this opinion, you wouldn't understand. Uh, the social movement that went in to LGBTQ equality and why it's so important. Uh, and that's trouble because when it comes to um, to balancing the value of religious liberty against the value of civil rights, 
uh, what is there on the civil rights side of the ledger for LGBTQ people? We know that Gorsuch thinks there, that religious liberty is very important and a crucial part of our constitutional tradition, um, and that he will wax poetic about that. But how does that balance against LGBTQ rights if it's just a matter of logic, if it's just that it's downstream of sex? Right. And it's it's I'm, very bloodless in that way, because I said on Twitter that it's really dependent literally on statutory construction and the elements of proof. Like if it weren't a but-for causation, if Title VII were diluted to not be a but-for causation statute in the same way that... Um, there was a there was a case this term about um, I I don't remember if it was BET or another another right. uh, black owned network yeah. right yep. where they were arguing that they were discriminated against by the cable franchises and the Supreme Court said well it's not a but for causation case so it's a mixed motive and so you lose on the contract claim and all of this all of Bostock goes away if they water down the causation element of Title VII because there's no like underlying uh, civil right being vindicated. Like it really is that bloodless an opinion that it pivots on the standard of proof. There's no heart to it. And you know? balancing, balancing religious liberty against civil rights, that's an analysis that takes heart it, it, you have yeah. to understand the values at stake. And we saw this in Hobby Lobby, where the Supreme Court gave short shrift to the gender equality interest in having access to birth control. It went so far as just to say, well, we'll assume there's an interest there, but we're not going to talk about it at all. If you do that, right. of course, you're going to think that religious liberty outweighs uh, this, this very bloodless, decontextualized interest in gender equality. Right. And and it like and it ends up being a sort of unfortunate parallel for the last thing that Alito wrote, which is he you know he writes this fiery thing at the end where he's like, and how does this compare to equal protection claims? And he says like it's a bad thing. So you can be clear that he's never going to like give increased scrutiny to gay or trans rights discrimination cases under the Equal Protection Clause. And it's just sort of mind-boggling that he would say that so uh, stridently. You know, like anyone, anyone who sees this as a potentially bad civil rights future is someone to be careful about. And the fact, I think you're right, the fact that Gorsuch was so... Um, dispassionate about it uh, indicates that he probably has no interest in increased scrutiny either. I would add, though, that there is one benefit to Gorsuch's uh, style of dealing with this, and it is that for transgender people, the trans rights concerns are obviously far more broad than just Title VII than just sex discrimination statutes. It's virtually every broadly applicable statute for decades and decades and decades. The vast majority of courts have twisted themselves into knots, trying to write in what Jennifer Levi, a professor and another transgender advocate, would call sort of a transgender exception to everything. So, so for instance, you know, if you want to change your name in court, uh, you're allowed to do that in most states. You, you go to court, you petition, you say what your new name is. 
and that's it. The court really can't scrutinize scrutinize it beyond making sure that you like report it to your creditors or something really basic like that, right? But for a very, very long time, courts throughout the country for all sorts of wacky reasons would say, well, no, of course, transgender people don't have access to that statute because they're doing it for a nefarious purpose that the legislature uh-huh. might not have you know, took into mind. And, and that's just one example, right? There are lots of other examples. So what someone like me can do or someone like Jessica can do with um, the Gorsuch opinion, despite its limitations, and say, no, here's a new rule of statutory interpretation. You don't read in a transgender exception unless it's express. And then if it's express – Maybe we can have some sort of constitutional analysis. Now, do we lose on the constitutional end? Maybe. Definitely with Alito, I'd say. I don't think there's any way to move Alito. It doesn't matter how good the arguments are. Maybe not with Gorsuch. Maybe maybe this is a baby step for him. But this gives us a a bit bigger tool in the toolkit. This is something that helps us sort of put courts to rest on. You can't just read exceptions into a statute because you dislike a group of people or that group of people, as Justice Gorsuch said, was disliked when that statute was passed. We're not going to do that. Right. That's no longer relevant. So that's that's huge in ways that, you know, don't they're not warm hearted. It's not Kennedy's dignity. It's not no one's going to read paragraphs of Gorsuch's opinion at like an important ceremony in their life like they do with their burger file. Like it's not <laughs> nice. No one really wants to hear this. But like it, it's very practically useful. And I think it does in a lot of ways and obviously did for Justice Roberts. It speaks to a lot of conservatives who aren't prone side with transgender people who mm-hmm. aren't prone to side with gay people on these issues but they, they see something there that helps them understand and maybe it's a transitional moment for the court maybe it's a transitional moment for some conservatives yeah and my first thought was that roberts joined the opinion in part just so he could assign the opinion but in the end i don't think that's true because i think ginsburg kind of would have been forced to give the opinion to gorsuch anyway because you'd end up with a 414 if she didn't you know he just wouldn't have signed on to, I think, a much more fulsome civil rights-y opinion and probably mm-hmm. would have just written a concurrence that was this anyway. So uh, I think in the end, my new theory about uh, Robertsology is that he signed on to it because he has enough self-awareness to know that it's better historically for this to be 6-3 instead of 5-4. It stamps it as less partisan. And I think, you know, he is someone who has a reputation. Like in private practice, he helped gay litigants with cases. And he yeah. he's got his shitty core political values, but doesn't seem to be like in an interpersonal context as shitty of a person. And I think, you know, you saw some of that in his Obergefell dissent too, where he is like, this is horrible for all sorts of reasons. Uh, But also like, I'm happy for all the people who can actually get married. I don't actually not want that to happen. I just think the, you know, the legal framework is bad and shouldn't have been the courts or something, which ends up being the model really for what Kavanaugh did here, right? Kavanaugh wrote a very uh, Robertsy dissent in that he was less, he was more animated about gay rights than, uh, than Gorsuch was, You know, like in both his opening and closing, Kavanaugh made sure to be like, look, I don't want to, you know, rain on anyone's parade here. The people who won should be proud of everything they did. And I don't actually sort of mind that they have these rights. I just think that this is sort of a shitty way for a court to displace the legislature, which, 
you know, I always think is a bit of a dodge and of questionable sincerity, but it's at least it's at least that he has to fake it as something nice. It's something. Yeah. I wish that he had mentioned the broader LGBTQ community and not just gay and lesbian Americans in that passage, because transgender people, uh, especially transgender women, were at the forefront of, of the, this yeah. litigation effort, and they're almost entirely erased from Kavanaugh's descent. There's one yeah. footnote where he mentions gender identity and he says, oh, same arguments sort of apply there. It's funny. I, my, I have a two-pronged theory on why Kavanaugh did that. Prong one is that counterintuitively, I think the trans rights case fits much more comfortably under Title VII than gay rights does. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. transgenderism isn't downstream of sex. Transgenderism <laughs> is, it's on account of sex. Like, it, that's it. Like, you know, anything other than that is just your, like, the, the, the employer's personal peccadilloes and squickiness about transgenderism writ large. But it's clearly on account of sex in an unambiguous way. And for gay rights, it is a little bit more downstream. You have to make the loving analogy or a sex stereotype thing. And so I think Gorsuch is right, but Alito's argument that once you go downstream at all, it's no longer because of sex is sort of offensive and I think wrong, but it's like better than make weight as a logical argument on why sex and uh, sexual preference are distinct. And so I think Kavanaugh didn't want to address it because it's a stronger case. And two, because he is genuinely prejudiced in that sense. And so didn't address it because he wanted to be the guy who was being really uh, positive and nice about gay rights without ruining his own reputation by being honest about his feelings on trans rights. If your first theory is true, it was sloppy for him to put in a footnote suggesting the issues are mostly the same. Uh, I can't oh. psychoanalyze him, so I don't know about your right. second theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I would say I would say I, I think it's the, some version of the first theory that I agree with just because it, 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 it's sloppy because I think he's trying to be the good guy. And it's hard to be the good guy where you're saying all the stuff that he says, where the analysis just doesn't back up the position that he's trying to stake out. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's been known for a very long time that even very far right judges thought transgender people were protected. The first judge to dissent in the first Title VII case to go up to a circuit in the Ninth Circuit was a Nixon appointee, Judge Goodwin. Like he was not a liberal in the 70s. And he basically, mm -hmm. his language is a little bit different than Gorsuch's, but he basically used the same logic in the 1970s to say, no, I think transgender people are protected. That wasn't a popular right. position to take, right? Right. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, whatever right. it is, maybe maybe we'll find out from a Kavanaugh clerk at some point right. what went on. <laughs> right. I mean, okay. I think he had no choice, right? He had to address yeah. it in some way. Do either of you have any uh, closing thoughts on this about the the future of the future of these cases, what will come from them or from the court? Uh, Ezra, do you want to go first? 
Sure. Um, I think in the coming years, we'll see, at least in the lower courts, I don't think the Supreme Court will take it up anytime soon, uh, attempts to flesh out sort of what it means for transgender and uh, LGBT people to be protected by Title VII. So uh, in hostile work environment cases, what sort of, you know, actions, what sort of conditions are actually hostile in a sexual way, uh, trying to flesh out sort of if there is any room in between what it means to be LGBT and to experience hostile work environments. Um, I think we'll see a lot of RIFRA and RIFRA-like cases where people try to use religious beliefs, either the employees or the employer's beliefs, to try to get around what this means. I think what we'll also see is an attempt to pass new legislation. I'm hoping things like the Equality Act die the deaths they deserve to die. It was a poorly written, poorly written bill that makes no sense and is definitely not needed in the same way it was before. But it might be an opportunity for the LGBT community to sort of come together with folks on the other side of these issues to try to figure out if there's a world in which some religious exemptions make sense, they're maybe more narrow, more specific to religious services and religious spaces, and not so workplaces, hospitals, and uh, other contexts like that where they prove more problematic. Um, but I think only time will tell. I think you know Gorsuch is showing us potential, Justice Roberts is showing us potential to help vindicate LGBT rights in important ways at important moments in our country. But I think we'll have to see what happens this next term and the terms to come. I would just add that even if Congress were to uh, pass new legislation that uh, set out a different compromise between religious liberties and LGBT rights, the Supreme Court could come in and find it invalid under the free exercise clause of the Constitution. Uh, but I don't want to be pessimistic about the Bostock decision, which is a landmark civil rights victory. I was I was stunned. I was floored by this opinion. It's amazing to think that last week in uh, almost half of the states, a person could be fired just for being LGBT. And this week they can't. That's right. phenomenal. Thank you both uh, for joining me here. I appreciate it. I uh, learned a lot. I appreciate uh, that you took the time uh, to respond to me. Uh, so uh, Ezra Ishmael Young, uh, good luck on the job market. Uh, thank you. Get a professor in front of your name soon. And Professor Jessica Clark, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Charles Starr, and this is Hostile Witness. Thank you to my guests, Jessica Clark and Ezra Ishmael Young. Check the podcast Twitter account, at Hostile Podcast, for links to their Twitter accounts and the law review articles that alerted me to them. They're very good. Thank you, as always, to Mike Weeby, Riverboat Gamblers, and Patrick Cosmos for letting me use their music, and thanks to Dan Parshall for audio engineering. I'm Charles Starr, and this is Hostile Witness. Thanks for listening.